Yeah, very wild stuff. I want to welcome Stefan Kinsella. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, or good 11.33 Eastern Time. Yeah, there's, I mean, sometimes we actually get West Coasters on here. This show starts at 7 a.m. West Coast time. It's almost right in the middle of the day for the East Coast, but yeah. Well, good. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, man. Thanks for, thanks for hanging out. Um, going to do a little intro for you and we can maybe dig into some thoughts. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Stefan Kinsella, he's an American intellectually, excuse me, intellectual property lawyer, author, deontological anarcho-capitalist. I'm not even sure what that means, so maybe you can explain it. Uh, his works have been published by Oxford University Press, Oceana Publications, Mises Institute, Quid Pro Books, and others. A um, couple of different topics we can run into today, but I just want to also quickly mention that recently you did a podcast with Bree Love, who we're going to be having on here towards in the next couple of weeks here. But uh, the episodes were Corrupt Money and Centralization of the State, Psychology of Property, Why Socialism Can Never Improve the World, and the Story and the Power of Control. These are all very interesting topics to me. Um, I, I think this power projection thing is an important idea. I think a lot of Bitcoiners kind of got upset when, when Lowry was discussing this, but I mean, this goes all the way back to single celled organism stuff. Like all of life does it. <clears throat> I feel like we, when we're in a, a society with a rule of law, you don't see it on a daily basis because you're shifted from it. The rule of law and the system protects you from the fact that power projection is occurring all day, every day, all around us. Uh, but it's done in a civil way, theoretically. The reality, though, is, is that one group of human beings gets the, gets the authority and the legal framework to exert that power over others. And this is where things start getting a little sketchy. <laughs> because human beings can't always be trusted with such things, right? So let's start there. <laughs> Well, I think I mean, that's a deep topic, and I think it kind of hits on the nature of uh, societal organization and the state. Um, and this is why, like Hans Hermann Hoppe, who is a, a big focus of um, the Breedlove discussions, because he want, he wanted to go in depth into a lot of the work of Hans Hermann Hoppe and his theories of, of the state and justice and rights and property rights and things like that. Um, and Hoppe, and part of Hoppe's uh, commentary is he contrasts monarchy with democracy. So. What we're living in now is the age of democracy, the age of the administrative state, the age of the deep state, the age of um, regulation and institutionalized government. And yeah, we think of that as modern and liberal because we have these so-called uh, due process rights and other other rule of law type rights. But um, we've sort of been fooled by the by the by by the you know by the window dressing put out by the people in favor of the system into thinking that we have more liberties than in the past. Because we can vote and we're part of the we're part of the state and there's democracy and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but the problem is, yeah, you're right. Some people gain control of it, but there's no one person in control of everything, right? So you have this big smeared out blob of vague power, and different different politicians and legislators and executives come and go, and the bureaucratic state stays in the meantime. And you know, in a monarchy, let's say, which I'm not a monarchist, but it, it is preferable in some ways to what we have now because in a monarchy, 
there's one king, there's one there's one center of power, and if he gets to be too tyrannical, he can be killed, right? Um, there's no one to kill in the current system because we're like, one one third of, of the population is complicit in it at least, and and, and another one third is dependent upon it, you know. Um, uh, so this is what you have. You have this bureaucratic state with increasingly inhumane results because you have under the old regime, like under the private law of Rome and of the English common law and of the monarchical age, you had basically the idea that um, there's a rule of law, there's private property rights, and people have their rights, um, and law is made by judges trying their best to find the just solution to different disputes and outcomes, and that's how the private law develops. And so that's how we have Western civilization. But nowadays, ever since about 100 years ago, uh, legislation and statutory law and regulatory law and administrative law has become dominant. And so now what the law is and what, say, federal judges interpret, they're not trying to do justice because that's not their job. Their job is to read a text and interpret right. it and apply it whether the result is just or not. So they read a statute or they read an administrative ruling or they read a regulatory ruling or they read the constitution, all of which are just written documents, just written by a committee of bureaucrats, which have – and they have nothing to do with justice. So if the law says you go to prison for 45 years because you had an ounce of uh, – you know, a pound of cocaine, you go to prison. It doesn't matter whether it's just or not, um, and, and now we have these administrative agencies trying to determine in their old-fashioned 20th century – 20th century analog age classification system, whether uh, a given token or cryptocurrency or derivative is or is not a commodity or is or is not a, a security. Uh, in other words, they try to shoehorn these new things into their old definitions, and then they will follow the old rules and, uh, and, and just apply it as they see fit. So to me, this is the problem. Everyone gets lost in the weeds, and everyone's debating about whether, uh, you know, XRP or whatever is a security or not. The, that that that's just that's getting into the government's uh, assumption of the right to make these decisions and to classify things. And, you know, in, yeah. in, the, in the libertarian or free market idea, uh, concepts emerge from practical daily life. And they're useful concepts, and if we describe things with a concept that, that helps us understand the world, then that concept gets a word, and we start using it, right? It's like marriage. You know? So like the government shouldn't define marriage. Marriage is a concept that arises, arises on the private – on private society, on the free market uh, to describe a relationship between, say, man and woman in the old days, and whether or not it would apply to homosexuals is up to evolving you know, cultural standards of society. The government shouldn't come in and define it right, and try to shoehorn it. Yes or no into the state's definition. Um, the only reason that's necessary is because the state has assumed control, right? So the state assumes the right to regulate these industries. So one agency can regulate it if you classify it this way. One agency can regulate it if they classify it that way. Is it the SEC? Is it the IRS? Is it the antitrust, you know, uh, division? Um, so the problem is the modern administrative state, and that is an outcome of having democracy, which you know, undercut the old way of doing things under the monarchical system. It's an interesting generational shift in mentality that I have observed because, you know, you have this situation where in the beginning of the United States of America, we've talked about this before on the show, where 
the founders of the country believed and thought it was obvious to everyone that that the rights of man are given to us by God, not by a government. That's one part of it. And then now you have kind of this drift in in the way people look at it, where a lot of people are like, well, you have these rights because the government gave them to you. And now I'm starting to see it happen with corporations uh, and like the whole concept of, of rights versus justice versus law is really morphing. I saw this article where the the way the article was framed, it was like there are banks in the UK that are asserting a new right as if them creating a, a company policy now becomes a right somehow. And then just yesterday, here, here's another example. I did a wire transfer, called my bank, was talking to a young lady. She started asking me all kinds of questions about what it's for. Um, and I asked her just because I was curious about, you know, how these people are thinking, right? And this gal was younger. I don't know how young, but she was young enough to probably, I can remember when it was considered offensive to ask people personal questions about what they're doing with their money. I can remember this. This was a human thing. And now the gal's like, okay, well, explain why you want to do the wire. I'm like, do I have to do that? Well, she says, well, what do you mean you have to do that? Yeah, you have to do that. And I said, well, is it required by law that I explain to you why I want to do this wire? And she's like, yes, it is. I was like, are you sure about that? And she thought about it for a second. She's like, no, it's a bank policy and, is, and you have to do it. And, and like just this, this, and I could tell like she had never really like explored this mentally. So they, you have these generations of people who are growing up in a society where they, they're become accustomed to the surveillance state. They're becoming accustomed to this idea that you can do all this stuff to people. With, of course, with no I, I, repercussions. I think, yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, if you go back and watch these movies we watched, I don't know, 15 years ago, like The Lives of Others, which showed the paranoia and the lack of privacy under, like, say, communist um, East Germany, you know, during the during the Cold War era. But we're experiencing bits and pieces of that increasingly now because of the surveillance state and because of the government's increasing attempt to control us and what we do with our money because ultimately – I think it's ultimately because um, – Oh, the state wants to inflate their money, right? And when they inflate the money to get things for free, people try to get around that, <laughs> and and then the government tries to stop them from getting around it, right? <laughs> by like by using cash. Okay, you can only use cash for certain purposes, and if you use it for other purposes, you 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 should pay income tax, so we should get our cut. Um, let me make an analogy though to what you're saying about this. What what you're talking about ultimately is what we call legal positivism or legislative positivism. Um, and that's the dominant way of thinking about law today. And the analogy would be to money, which Bitcoin uh, has 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 a, a relation to. Because when you live in a world of, say, a relatively fixed money supply, like say, let's say you have a gold standard, so money, the money only inflates very low, at a very low stock to flow ratio, right, uh, or high high stock to flow ratio. Um, and uh, so, in other words, it's pretty stable. And so that gives rise to a certain mentality among the people. This has been written about by, say, Paul Cantor and, and others. Um, a, a, you have a certain time preference, like you have a long-term orientation. You have a certain respect for savings and a certain respect for uh, investment and capital accumulation. Whereas in the modern age, when everyone knows that the money is being degraded and purchasing power all the time, it totally changes the character of society. It makes us more consumer-oriented. 
you know, in fact, you hear stupid things like, uh, oh, the, the current the current economic boom is being driven by consumers. It's, it's like completely economically illiterate to think that consumers drive economic growth. I mean, economic growth is growth means productivity growth. <laughs> so, you know, the, it, so but it makes people live for the short run and, and it makes us um, have a d totally different character, which is one reason I believe that as a libertarian uh, are, are running around trying to propagandize people and, and to try to educate people is not really going to be the solution to achieving liberty. But I think Bitcoin could be if it ever supplanted um, the fiat system and returned us to a different type of money, which could change the entire character of the people and the way we do things, the way we think about life. Um, so I think Bitcoin is the possible libertarian savior of the world, right? If it ever, if, if it could ever oust the, the current rickety fiat systems but the analog to legislative positivism is in in today's age um you know in, in a world where the law moves slowly and it only advances by the decisions of judges trying to do justice people basically try to respect the law and they think the law is roughly just and they try to live in accordance with the law and they plan their future plans according to what the law is because they think it's relatively stable and constant uh, a private law society world a private law world is a good world uh, for 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 the market economy, for human society, for the, the the steady growth of the human race, and things like that. But when you have the emergence of statutory law and legislative law, like we have now, everyone, even the average person, over time, their conception of what law is changes. So they don't think of law as these natural principles um, of justice that everyone sort of knows, as as the saying goes, is engraved on your heart, right? Um, it's it's instead it's instead just whatever the, the the powers that be decree. So then it makes people more servile because now they're used to obeying orders from who's ever giving these commands because the commands are arbitrary, sometimes incompatible with each other, um, and also it makes people uh, less productive because they don't save as much for the future and they don't invest as much for the future because the future is more uncertain. The future is more uncertain because the law can change from day to day. The government can change tomorrow a different regulatory classification, uh, like, like calling something a security <laughs> out of the blue, um, or the government can start taxing something, or the government can outlaw something, or just decree something to be an export that you can't make or an import that you can't get. And so entrepreneurs facing this, they see that the future is more uncertain, and this inherently lowers – or sorry, increases time preference. It makes people more present oriented because the future is less less certain. It's just rational not to invest for the future when the future is more uncertain than it would be in a private private law society. And so the whole mentality of the people changes. And as this as this this young young lady you mentioned at the bank, they they just start equating decrees of any powerful sovereign as equivalent to law. And they start thinking of rights not as the natural rights that we have, but as whatever the, the law or the government or some powerful group like their company policy tells them it is. So it makes us servile. It makes us willing to put up with anything. Think about why people put up with COVID lockdowns. It's because the government told us and all the, all the powerful institutions told us you have to lock down. You have to get this vaccine. Don't trust your own common sense. Trust the experts and do what we say. And almost everyone complied because we've turned us into a nation of sheeple by this legislative and legal positivism. It's, in, it's just wild, like the, the ramifications of that for all of society. And I do hope I agree with everything you just said. I do hope that uh, 
if we can figure out a way, um, if, if Bitcoin adoption gets to a scale where it starts to supplant fiat, it, I believe it will change the character of the people. I agree with what you said that that it's the fiat system, the dishonest money is the root of of the character flaws that are currently in society in, to a large degree. I mean, the amount of mental health issues that are occurring, et cetera, continues to scale. And I think this is all a this is all a you know second, third, fourth, fifth order effects of having dishonest. I, I totally agree, money. but there's lots there's lots of effects, and the problem is, you know, all the really good scholars and smart thinkers, they're usually mainstream people in universities. They're not going to be the ones to, to trace this out because they bought into the propaganda. So the only people that look into this are basically kind of you know a, a lot of amateur kind of people on the side who are smart, but we're not the deep scholars at Oxford and stuff. So we get relegated to crank status because we're not the deep experts, but we're the ones that kind of have a good sense of what's really going on. But so you always have this battle. And by the way, you said something interesting about the founders, uh, say the American founders. Even if you're right that most of them like sincerely sort of believed in natural rights coming from God or another way of putting it is being inherent in, in the, the nature of man, something that any any common sense human can can detect, which is where the expression natural laws engraved on your heart so for for example um you know now we have this rule that says ignorance of the law is no excuse and the reason we have that rule is because the rule made sense when law was natural law like so if everyone understood that you can't murder someone and you murder someone and your defense was well i didn't know it was wrong to murder people everyone in the community would say that's bs everyone knows it's wrong to murder because it's a natural crime right it's a naturally obvious crime it's engraved on your heart so it makes sense to say ignorance of the law is no excuse when there's only a small set of of of, of wrongs in the in the in the criminal law and they're all natural in common sense but now you have so many laws like just say in the united states alone we have so many laws that there's no one there's no single expert there's no person who even knows how many laws there are there are thousands or Hundreds of thousands. Yeah, and there's tens of thousands of new laws and regulations written every yeah. year. No one even knows how many laws there are, and it is literally impossible to 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 always know that you're that you're not. In fact, there I, I would I would I would bet good money that every single American citizen violates hundreds of laws every year. Everyone, it's impossible. Every day, to, every day. So I there was a book by the name of Three Felonies a Day. That the author was basically trying to make the case that like there are so many raw laws that are written so broadly that the average American is probably committing three felonies daily. I jaywalk jaywalk every day. And so in in, in this kind of system, it should be a defense that you that you were ignorant, like you didn't know. That that should be a defense. Like under a natural law system, maybe ignorance of the law should not be an excuse. But I think under today's system, ignorance of the law should be an excuse. But it, but of course it's not because the government wants the discretion to selectively enforce the laws against their their enemies, which which again lowers the respect people have for law because they start thinking of law as just a political tool wielded by the state. Look at the Trump the Trump and the Biden thing going on now. Everyone is both sides are diametrically opposed because they both kind of realize the other is just totally self serving, right? And they're just using the law when they can. Against their political opponents, but my point about the founders was, even though they expressed in in the Declaration, for example, the notion that that rights come from the nature of man or from God, 
their inalienable rights, um, they wrote it down, and then they they enacted it like a statute. Like uh, the, you know, the Congress adopted the Declaration of Independence on July second, which is the real birthday of the uh, of, of the U.S. Not July fourth. It was it was actually ratified uh, adopted on July second. But anyway. Um, and, and then the Constitution was adopted in 1789. So these are written documents that just have decrees of a, a committee of bureaucrats. Now, compared to today's bureaucrats, these bureaucrats were pretty good, right? They were way better than <laughs> than the modern American Congress. But still, it set in it set in the minds of people the idea that law comes from a written document passed by uh, a government. And that sets in mind the motion, the, the wow. notion in people's minds that it's not natural law based. It's whatever the powerful sovereign says. And the initial set of laws are kind of compatible with natural rights because it was based upon the English common law and the Magna Carta and all that kind of stuff. But then over time, now the government had the power to change it with amendments to the Constitution, uh, you know, like the income tax amendment <laughs> and, um, and 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 the Fourteenth Amendment. And also to pass statutes and then to, to set up regulatory agencies that can pass regulatory rules that, that are the equivalent of, of statutes. I oh mean, the my space. gosh, don't get me started on that. That's like a yeah, huge, yeah, we could spend so, 30 minutes talking about it. So this is just one way that we radical libertarians look at. I, I think looking at the state in this radical way doesn't help us defeat it in the beginning, but at least it's it's, it's important to have an open um, you know, have open eyes and to understand the nature of what we're confronting, what we're dealing with. Not, not, not to whitewash it, not to pretend that it's it's great that the founders were libertarians. They weren't. You know, um, to realize what we're dealing with, and that will help us appreciate the promise of something like a Bitcoin or or, or, or decentralized digital currency. Okay, so listen, I love having these conversations with you. I think next time we do this, Jacob, we should we should slot forty five minutes or an hour. Like I think we could go deep on a lot of this stuff. So let's uh, maybe Stefan, if you're cool with that, we'll do a little bit longer. We got about five minutes left in the show today. Um, I'd like to talk about this new book that you've got coming up, the Legal Foundations of a Free Society, because a lot of what we've been talking about, sort of. Points directly at this. You want to tell us a little bit about it? Well, I started writing um, on um, on libertarian matters in the early '90s, um, and uh, what I've done is I've taken 25 articles I published over about a 29 year period and put them together, rewritten them, integrated them together, and put it together in a book. And it's it's basically about um, uh, combining in, in, insights from Austrian economics, but like which is what I view as a sound economics, um, uh, insights from the common law, the private law, the Roman law, uh, libertarian, radical anti-state libertarian thinking, Rothbard, people like that, and just analyzing like what laws that we have are just and unjust, and why? What should the law be? What's the essence of liberty? Why? Why are some of us libertarians? What's the essence of it? Um. In a sense, uh, most of my book is kind of online in previously published form right now, and it'll be out in September. Uh, I'm pretty happy with it. I'm pretty happy to get it off my plate because I've been trying to get this done for about a decade now, and I finally got off my butt and got it finished. But um, if anyone's interested, uh, go, go to my website and, and look at Chapter 2. Chapter 2 is kind of like the core of 
with what the book explores in detail in the other chapters, but chapter two is called What Libertarianism Is. And it took me a long time to figure out like the best way to think of what the essence of the libertarian um, framework is and should be. And honestly, becoming an anti-intellectual property advocate helped me to do this because I had to like get to the core of what property rights are and what the purpose of, of, of law is and what justice really means to sort out this IP issue, and that helped me to become much more clear on understanding – what the, uh, the essence of libertarianism is, and ultimately in, in short principle, it's self-ownership. You own your body, and you own other resources in the world that you – that were unowned that you first used. That's called homesteading or that someone gives you by contract. Like those three principles explain 95 percent of what private law and justice should be. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Um Man, I feel like there's so much more that we could talk about, but we're pretty much here at the end of the show. So let's let's start moving to wrap it up. I want to, Stefan, um, give you an opportunity to make some closing comments. I think we have a few minutes. We have a, a time for probably one question. Is it okay if uh, we let open it up, let some people ask you? Yeah, sure. All right. If you're on the panel uh, and you have a question for Stefan, now's the time. If you're in the audience and you want to come up and ask Stefan, go ahead and request to come up. We'll invite you. You can also ask the question in the Telegram group. That's t.me forward slash Cafe Bitcoin Club. Hey, Stefan, I appreciate you, uh, you coming on and talking about this stuff. It uh, really resonates with, with me and I'm sure many of us here for sure. Um, what are you mentioned Rothbard and some of the people that you've kind of studied? What are, who are some of the, your big influencers or mentors over the years that you've kind of come to some of these conclusions? Uh, that's a good question. Um, if you want to look at it more systematically, I have a, a – go to stephankinsella.com and go to my uh, slash LFFS and look – and I have a, a blog post there called something like The Greatest Libertarian Books, and I have there some of the, my favorites. Uh, I, I would say my, my – the way I do my theory is mostly influenced by, uh, by Mises and Rothbard and Hoppe, okay? But of course, they drew upon other people too. And I was a, I was at first a Randian, so I'm influenced by Rand. But my, my actual theory is more deeply rooted. I would say Hoppe number one, Mises number two, and Rothbard number three. Um, now there's tons of other thinkers that have influenced sort of these the applications and the side things like Randy Barnett, Bruce Benson, the Enterprise of Law, David Friedman, oh the Morrison, Linda Tannehill on anarchy. Um, anyway, I've got a lot of those recommendations in that post. It's called The Greatest Libertarian Books. Um, so that's some of my influences. But when people ask for reading suggestions, it really depends upon what they're interested in and where their level of uh, sort of development is. And you know, So I, when people ask me questions privately, I just usually ask them a, a few questions, and I tailor my answer to them. So if anyone wants to email me about something like that or, tw or tweet me or whatever, uh, I'd be happy to or direct message me on Twitter. I'd be happy to, uh, to respond, but, uh, or if you have any particular focus you want to ask about, I'd be happy to address that. All right. That's pretty much it. Uh, any closing comments you want to make Stefan, by the way, thanks again for being here. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you about this stuff, uh, and would like to go deeper with you in our next show. No, no, I think we covered everything I'd like to cover, so I appreciate the time. Awesome. All right, people, that is a wrap. You have been listening to Cafe Bitcoin. 
We do it every day, Monday through Friday on Twitter Spaces as a live show. It's the place for your morning news, preferred hangout for some of the smartest minds in the industry. Also a podcast on Fountain, Spotify, and Apple. Thanks to Swan Bitcoin, the sponsor of the show. My crew, Ant, Peter, Sats for Life, Wicked, Producer Jacob. I'm your host, Alex Danzig, and I work with Swan. If you want to know more, shoot me DM. Happy to help you. Thanks again to the speakers, Stefan, all the speakers who come on here all day, every day, taking their personal time to teach people about this bright orange future. I admire that. That is what we call getting on the mission. If you don't know what that means, hang out. You'll figure it out. Love you guys. Everybody go out there and have a great day today. Crush it. <laughs>